Hi, I'm Chad Griffiths, and I'm pleased to announce that I'll be offering a membership slash mentorship program in 2024. It's going to cost $250 for the entire year, and it'll grant you uh, exclusive access to interviews with some CEOs, high producing brokers, economists, and really anybody that will help make your journey in industrial real estate that much more productive. And it will also have access to a wide array of professionals all across the world. I'm going to put a limit on this just so that it doesn't get to, to a crazy amount where we can still have a tight knit community. Uh, so sign up now. First guest will be mid January. And again, uh, members will have exclusive access to ask questions, uh, get to know other people in the forum and really just try to make this value add. $250, my plan will be that you get a multiple of value back in and, in and above that $250 cost. Uh, and again, that's for the whole year. So look forward to having you join and uh, really growing out this community and membership uh, in 2024. So put a link below. Uh, and if you have any questions, please reach out to me or Wyatt and we'd be happy to get back to you. Thanks. Look forward to a productive 2024. Hey, Casey, I know you're super busy, so thanks for joining me on another interview. Always glad to join you, Chad, and your audience. Uh, you do good do good work out there, so we appreciate it. Well, and likewise, it's, you're, you're a guest that often gets uh, recommended and asked for <laughs> to come back again, so I appreciate you always accepting my invitation. And there's a ton to talk about. I want to get to the Federal Reserve in a second here with their announcement yesterday. But even leading up to that, if we could ignore yesterday happening for a second, what it seems that the interest rates went up the fastest in decades with the deliberate intention of trying to slow down the economy. And that was a shock to the whole real estate system. But why hasn't there been more just blood in the streets that you think uh, with the interest rates going up so fast? Why hasn't there been more forced sales? And how is the just the real estate economy in general? How do you think it's been able to hold in as well as it has given these circumstances? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a timing issue. So as you know, uh, just because the rates went up, you know, 10, 11, 12 times in 12 months didn't mean all the real estate loans came due. They roll out. And so we, we've all talked about the numbers, tree and tree and a half next year, another tree and after that. So all these loans that have been done over the last five to 10 years that are coming due or the construction loans in particular that were underwritten for a 5% exit cap or a less than 5% permanent market, that's not there. And the Fed can, they could cut all the rates they want, you know, starting in January and March next year, which they're not going to do. Um, and it doesn't do anything for our world because banks are upside down on the real estate. They have too much of it. Uh, the cap rates aren't, aren't rechanging. And really all the interest rates are affecting is we look at the stock market at record levels. Think about what's valued and what's invested in the stock market. So if you look at the S&P and NASDAQ, it's 70% weighted towards technology stocks. Technologies have future earnings that, you know, in good times and low interest rates, they get discounted at a low number, a low IRR, and a cash flow makes for a big number. Uh, in, in higher rate times, they get discounted at a bigger number, so the values go down. So that's what we had happen in the stock market with tech stocks really over the last 6 to 12 months as interest rates went up and the, you know, 10-year treasury went all the way to 5 and now it's back below 4 it's kind of like a yo-yo. So the tech stocks now, all those future earnings are being valued at a sub 4% number instead of a north of 5. That didn't happen to us in real estate. Cap rates are still up there in the 7 or 8 range. Banks still aren't lending. They still, you know, want a, want a bigger cushion. They want, you know, 50 or 60% loan to value. It's not 70, 80%. The CMBS market is 80% contracted because, hell, they don't know how to hedge in this kind of environment from the Fed. Um, and then the other problem we have in the banks that hasn't been fixed by this is, when the Fed did this rapid raise in interest rates, they changed an over half century model in banks, which was the net interest mo margin model. So banks would pay you a penny for your deposits and they'd lend out at four pennies and make a great margin and life was wonderful. We'd all go play golf in the summer. <laughs> well, with these rate increases, that, in that net interest margin went upside down. And banks are still paying 5%, 4.5%, 5%. I went today and checked at Wells Fargo and a couple of others. They were still at 4.5% to try to lure deposits in, but their loans are only paying at 4%. So banks are upside down. They're not making money. They're not making money. And they know they've got problems coming on refinancing this commercial real estate and these construction loans. They're still locked up. 
So we're in a different world where our capital structure is totally different. And what's being valued in the stock market is not real estate and, and, uh, and whatnot. It's more tech stocks. And that's the disconnect the market's not figuring out. And I think that the Fed, when you think about the last meeting, they said, we're nowhere near done. And we, you know, you know, maybe we'll do another skip, but we still have, you know, more rate increases to go. And one meeting later, eight, nine weeks later, they say, job's all done. We're ready to cut. We're even going to put that on the table. We're going to cut at least three times, 75 basis points. I mean, I think the Fed's going to be eating these words like they were eating transitory inflation, transitory longer, not transitory. We have a lot of headwinds ahead of us. Inflation is not tamed at all. Look at the retail sales today. Consumer spending like mad. They're getting wage increases. We're solving all these labor strikes with more with more wages. So wage inflation is high. Shelter inflation is high. Home prices aren't going down. Apartment rents aren't going down. Expenses are going up. Um, and so the retail sales today were up three tenths of one percent. And if you take autos and gas out, it was six tenths of one percent. Wow. Wait till the Fed wakes up and starts seeing some of these metrics. Plus, the Fed decided they wanted to talk about a thing called the Taylor Rule yesterday. So it goes back to 1992. I was familiar with it when I was at the Fed. The Taylor Rule simply says, when you're above your target inflation and GDP is growing very strong, you need to be raising rates. And when it's opposite that, you lower them. So what do we have right now? We're still above target inflation and we have GDP in the last print that said 5%. What in the world is the Fed doing talking about rate cuts? I think they just want this all to go away like a bad dream. What amount does an election year play into it? Uh, is, is there a political element to this or what? Why do you think that they did a 180 on that saying, like you said, eight weeks ago, they were suggesting that there could be even further rate cuts and now complete change around and saying there could be three cuts next year. What what are they looking at? What are they trying to do here? Uh, is it politically influenced? Is there an economic reason for it? What, what, why did it change so abruptly? Yeah, so you've got a lot of change in the composition of the Fed. So you have the same chairman, but you've had some major retirements on Fed presidents, Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed, Esther George from the Kansas City Fed. These are long-term common sense people that said, look at, you know, you should have battled inflation early. And then when you did start battling it, you should have paused to take a pulse to see if you hadn't killed a patient yet. <laughs> you know, at least go get a, you know, an EKG. And and they're gone. And now we have a whole new composition of of voting FOMC members next year, like Atlanta Bostic from the Atlanta Fed that are all over the board with their GDP now that can swing by, you know, 50 to 100 percent in any one print period. Um, so you got a lot of composition change. And I think what the Fed finally realized is they really did screw up. They did the fastest, steepest rate increases in the history of the Fed, period. And they didn't pause. And now they're starting to see the impact, see the impact in commercial real estate, see it on what banks have to do in repricing their fixed assets and they need more capital and that they got to pay more for deposits. And they saw this whole collision coming. Um, and so since, you know, CPI looked like it was down from a six, seven percent number to a three to four, but it really isn't. They're just playing games with a number. So when you look at the CPI, they're changing the weighting of key inflation areas like shelter. It went from 40 percent of CPI to 20 percent. Ta-da! Inflation went away. No, it didn't. <laughs> what you and I spend money on is still there. The PCE, their favorite inflation index, is still very strong. So I think it's just more that they, they, they're realizing they really created a bad setup for the banks, net interest margin, for CRE, which is huge for our regional banks. They want to fit, have a thousand banks fail. Um, and that, um, and they want this to go away. And so they're saying, well, maybe we pivot and we, we try going the other way and see what happens next year. But remember what happened where we were a year ago. So a year ago, we'd had 10 interest rate hikes. The world was, was fine though. Nothing had happened in commercial real estate, right? Hmm. And I was doing briefings in December and even up to March 8th before Silicon Valley Bank failed and said, be careful. It's coming, <laughs> you know, and, it, and then we have Silicon Valley Bank failure. And so everybody thought, ah, we can handle 10 interest rate hikes. No, we couldn't. We just hadn't seen the trigger event like Silicon Valley Bank into First Republic to Signature Bank and then the whole credit lockup in commercial real estate. And so here we are a year later, record stock market. The Fed is done with rate, not only increasing rates, but they're going to give us it all back and inflation's tamed. And I think we're going to be eating all of those words. The numbers and the data are not there. GDP's not there. 
The job creation, we're still producing 150 to 200,000 jobs. Wages are going up 6 to 12%. Shelter's still going up, you know, in that range of 10% if you got a single family home. Um, and we've got all these other pressures like property insurance. So when we take a car apart our, our uh, expense pro forma in a commercial property type, we're looking at property and casualty insurance rates up overall as a national average, 8 to 12%. And in places like Florida or Texas, try 50 to 300%. Try to see what that does to your NOI. That's the disconnect. We don't, they're not understanding commercial real estate. They've never understood it and they don't understand its systemic nature in banks and everything else. And I think what they're doing here is saying, oh my God, we probably really did do it too fast without a pause. And now we got to calm the market down for 2024. Being election year, I think it's more about the composition of the Fed, who are the voting members, which Fed presidents left, rather than being Republican or Democrat, because honestly, Either one of them are fiscal nightmares. Both of them will spend like drunken sailors, and they have no intent of really getting our fiscal house in order. Yeah, that, that's so well said. I guess the next question then would be, what do you think they do next year with interest rates? And is that the same on what they should do? So what they do do and what they should do, are they the same? Or are they going to be completely different? Yeah. So here's my forecast. I'll be 100% right up until March. Okay. So, <laughs> so they didn't move today. And I said they wouldn't do this. They'd stay, you know, I called it jump rope uh, monetary policy, jumps, I mean, hike, skip, hike, skip, you know, just skip, whatever, all around. They didn't know what they were doing. And I actually gave them out a bunch of jump ropes at a briefing not too long ago. And they, and they, they didn't really laugh, but um, I thought it was good. So January, they won't do anything. We're coming off Christmas. Um, they're not, they're not going to reverse, you know, that quickly. Then they don't have a meeting in February. They always take February off. Do you know why the Fed takes February off every year? Hmm. They're hoping the damn groundhog will tell them what shadow they saw. Did they see inflation? <laughs> Not inflation. What did they see? So uh, so they take February off, then they'll come back in March. And that's where we got to worry because we'll have had three job prints. We'll have three more inflation indicators. We'll have a good first and second read um, on uh, well, final read on fourth quarter GDP. Well, good first read on first quarter GDP. We have all these geopolitical risks. We're spending like mad on deficit spending. That's the biggest inflation driver. We're spending it on Ukraine. We're spending it on the Middle East right now. We have all these headwinds on energy. We've not learned our lessons there. Um, you got the rest of the world, including our, our, our very liberal universities that think it's okay to talk about, you know, genocide and terrorists and whatnot, and they don't get it. So we got to come before Congress and get them to embarrass themselves to be fired. Um, so we got all these political headwinds and we forget the lessons of 1973. And I would encourage everybody to go back and read the history of 1973. We ticked off the Arab world and they shut off the oil. They did the Seinfeld episode of no soup for you before we had Seinfeld, no oil for you. I think we're heading to something very similar to that right now, where the Arabs are upset, they're cutting production. The next step is if this thing continues to escalate, they shut off the oil and we see oil prices just skyrocket again, even though they've come down. It's a very volatile commodity that goes all the way through our economy. Shelter, we're making no improvement there. Everybody says, oh my God, we've overbuilt multifamily. No, we haven't. I mean, we're not even going to deliver 600,000 apartment units. Normally we deliver 450,000. So we have an extra 100, uh, 125,000 units. Spread that across the 50 biggest markets in the country and it's a rounding area. It's like three new projects in each major city. We're not overbuilding multifamily. It's not going to implode. We're not overbuilding industrial. We're still building out our supply chain. So all those that are forecasting the end of the world, multifamily and industrial, they're, they're flat out wrong. So Fed won't do anything in January. They'll wait for the groundhog to tell them what to do in February for March. And then March is going to where, where we really see the rubber hit the road. And guess what? If they want to punt like they did last year, they just did one quarter point after doing nothing in January, then they take April off for spring break. And so after March, it's really May, June, July, August that we really got to worry about. And last year, we got 50 and 475 basis point increases. I think the Fed has to eat these words and we see that inflation isn't tamed. And if you just suddenly threw all this great, you know, uh, fuel on the fire to say, let's have the economy go, let's go GDP over 5%. Let's get back to 300,000 jobs in production. Let's do all of these things so that the consumer continue to spend and go on their credit card. You're just accelerating inflation next year. What they just did is just threw fuel on the inflation fire. They're going to eat these words. I, I think so as well. It just seems so peculiar that they would have said that when sending a message that they're just holding the rate steady was still yeah. a pretty positive message. But to hint that there was three cuts coming next year, 
just seen, and we saw it in the stock market today. Uh, publicly traded REITs, uh, yeah. well, they went up after hours uh, yesterday, uh, and then they were up again today uh, because everyone's saying, well, if there's going to be rate cuts, then all of a sudden real estate, which has been hit pretty hard, all of a sudden looks that much more attractive. When I agree with you, the, the inflation numbers seem like they're being manipulated to, to have them say whatever you want them to say. Uh, so it's it's so peculiar just how the whole thing's being run. And and your point about uh, Jerome Powell coming out two years ago and saying that inflation was transitory, that, that should have been the first indication that either somebody was pulling the strings on him or he had no idea what he was talking about because you can't print that much money and not have... Uh, an inflationary problem and for him to not recognize that. And sure enough, it was a massive inflation problem. I, I don't know how people can have faith in his ability to see through this when he's either been lying or ignorant about this entire process from day one. Yeah. What the problem is, is they're largely academic. So I spent five years in there. I was the only industry person, you know, in the Atlanta, New York fair that came out of real estate industry. That was the only MAI in, in, in the history of the fed that understood values it was the only one that had to explain to him how a construction loan worked. So they didn't, they, they didn't understand that. Um, and so uh, they're largely academic. They've never made a loan, broke a loan, fixed a loan, run a company, made a payroll. You know, they just they work 40 hours a week. No one's in there on Friday. This is all theory to them and they don't care what happens to the rest of the economy because they stay insulated in their really expensive fed buildings, which now they don't go to. They, they, they simply, um, they simply stay at, 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 at home. Uh, on, on that side. So I'll give you one more that'll, that'll really exclusive for your audience. So how many people have wondered where this 2% target came from, from the Fed? Yeah. I, you ever see wondered. the media ask him a question at his press conference? Nobody. They're all chicken because they won't get invited back. So I did some digging and, and worked with a good, a good colleague, um, Nomi Prims, who's with Inside Wall Street. And so we were talking about this and she did the heavy work. And we went back to where it, where it first came about. It came about in 1988 from New Zealand, the New Zealand prime minister, finance prime minister said, hey, we should put a number on what we're doing with monetary policy. And so they went and had dinner, had a few drinks, you know, played around the golf. And they came back and they said, let's put our finger in the air. Let's pick 2%. So they picked 2%. There's no research, no papers. And so then in 2012, Fed Chair Bernanke said, hey, if New Zealand's got one, why don't we adopt it too? They did no research, no papers, nothing why 2% works. So in the Volcker era, he had 4% and he actually had a logic. They did some research and work around it. And Volcker found that consumer behavior begins to really change when you get to 4% or higher inflation. They really do pull back. They no longer can just substitute, okay, I'll buy chicken instead of steak at the grocery store. They have to quit buying as much groceries. They really get hurt bad. So Volcker had some logic behind it and a 4% target. This 2% is made up just like transitory, not transitory, transitory longer was made up. And this thing, the credibility the Fed blew yesterday of going from, okay, we can just keep the market calm by saying, we, we think we might be able to be on a longer pause and a discussion. No, let's go do the rate cut thing when you just get prints on higher retail sales, 5% GDP, you know, 6 to 12% wage inflation. I, I would just shake in my head. This is the most incompetent Fed. I've said it before. This is the most incompetent Fed that we've ever had in our country. And they all should be fired. We should bring Trump back just for one thing, to hold a boardroom and to fire the Federal Reserve. We got rid of two prior central banks. Adams got rid of the second one. And um, we should get rid of this third one. They're doing us no damn good at all. Look, look at the... Uh, um, European, uh, look at Merkel today in her speech and say, look, we're running still 5% inflation. Don't even begin to, to ask questions about rate cuts. We still don't have inflation under control. Um, and so, I mean, I, I watched her in her speech and comments compared to Powell. It was night and day different. It was credible versus non-credible. I com completely agree. It's, it's so bizarre that they're chasing this arbitrary number of 2%. Uh, as, as you're suggesting, they just took it from New Zealand. They're chasing an arbitrary derived number that is being manipulated, <laughs> which is just so crazy. They're they're pull, they're pulling strings in every different direction. They don't even know what way the puppet's going. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of insight, and that's uh, I share that frustration with you. Do you to put on your crystal ball uh, uh, outfit for a second? 
what do you think's in store taking that all into mind now for 2024? And, and I know it's going to be impossible to look past March, but what's your guess? What do you think 2024 looks like for the uh, commercial real estate market? So I, I've been forecasting for quite a while that 24 was going to finally be that year of the recession that we thought was going to happen in 2022 or 2023. All the headwinds are building there. The fiscal debt situation, the inflation numbers, especially you know where we spend 80% of our money. We spend it on shelter, apartments or house. We spend it on energy. Um, you know, we spend it on food. Um, all those things have just tremendous pressures. We have huge global uh, geopolitical risks right now. Uh, we got Russia, Ukraine. Now we got the Middle East as a powder keg. And we've got more. Look at what's happening in our supply chain again. Look at the um, Panama Canal. Lake Nicaragua is affected by the drought. Can't get enough water to move into the locks to move the ships through. So we have this massive traffic jam in the Panama Canal because we got a drought affecting Lake Nicaragua. Look at the Middle East. So then we say, okay, we'll sail around and we'll go a longer way and we'll go through the Suez Canal. Look at the freaking geopolitical risk there and drones attacking commercial ships and even our military ships. And, you know, someone on a little, you know, rubber raft can go take over, you know, a commercial vessel or a, or a Navy ship. I, I just, you know, you almost wonder if you got Larry Curley and Mo running the American, you know, government economy, the central bank, Congress. The, I'm just shaking my head, but we have some huge, huge headwinds here. And just like we didn't prepare for a pandemic, pandemic or expected or know how to run for it. I don't think we're really prepared. I felt for quite a long time that what is setting up is more like the 1970s, not just from an inflation, but all these geopolitical risks like with, you know, the Arab oil embargo disruption and industry disruption. We have all of those forces. And I'll give you one more. On the food front, I did a piece this past week. There was a great analysis done. And believe it or not, USA Today picked it up and their own major paper to run it. It wasn't in the Wall Street Journal. But we have a massive veterinarian shortage in this country. And all of those vets are needed at every USDA inspection place. They're needed for all of our farm animals. Places like Kentucky, they highlighted Kentucky. Um, you know, they're at risk at 50% of their farm and cattle and animal production for the food supply being totally shut down. And we have this across the country. So what, what are we going to do there when we see, you know, our protein from meat literally double because we can't get vets to do USDA inspections or at ports or whatnot. So we've got all of these systemic problems that are still residual from COVID and just us not getting things fixed yet. And I, and I think they all have to be addressed and they all come home to roost. And then look at our dollar. Look, look at what happened to the dollar and its collapse again today, because if you say you're going to lower rates, what do you think the rest of the world wants to do in owning the dollar? When we had higher rates and the Fed was keeping them higher, everybody wanted to buy our dollar because in our bonds because they were going to pay a higher interest rate than, say, you know, uh, Germany or, you know, Japan or whatnot. Well, now if we're saying we're going to cut and we're going to go lower, they want to dump that damn dollar and they want to get into another currency. So what's that currency? It's BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South, South uh, Africa, and all the Middle East saying we're going to have our own digital currency. And if you want to buy our oil or our products or our commodities, you're going to come through us. And I think we're within two or three years of really seeing the complete de-dollarization of the world, that, that we don't be the reserve currency. And I thought that would take a decade or more, but it is happening very rapidly. I think we have so many problems and no leadership in Congress, in the Fed, in the White House. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of just adrift at sea. Uh, I'm very worried, but I think 2024, I'm very nervous about it. I, my advice to people would be threefold. Number one, um, you know, you're going to need more, more cash and equity. So don't go out and have a drunken sale we're spending for Christmas because it's not going to be that good next year. Number two, if you've got real estate, be working now to figure out where that equity that you're going to need to supplement the debt. The banks aren't going to replace this. They're not going to renew construction loans. They're not going to honor mini firms. They got to get this stuff out. And what banks are doing to survive right now is they're bundling those loans, those construction loans, and they're taking them to the Federal Home Loan Bank and they're taking them to the Fed and saying, here's $100 million worth of loans. Give me $100 million to run the bank because I can't afford to pay 5% on deposits. So there's only one problem. A year later, you got to come back and get those loans and pay 8% interest. So what's going to happen a year from now when the bank's got to go back and get those loans back and they don't have the capital and they can't raise it and they can't get the deposits? You know, are we going to have huge bank failures or is the Fed going to have to back its balance sheet up and say, we'll take all of those loans on our balance sheet? And that's going to freak the market out. Mm -hmm. I saw a statistic the other day uh, about 
commercial real estate deal volume year over year. And they were using October data just because I'm sure they didn't have November at the time. And it was pretty, pretty dramatic. Like even everything was minimum of 50% down, but industrial in particular was down 72 or 73% year over year in deal volume. Crazy. The prices actually went up 2%. And this was across the U S probably capital markets, mostly Uh, industrial prices went up 2%, even though volume was down 73%. And that was there in October, there was no indication that rates were slowing down or going to pause. Do you see the same thing happening next year where there's going to be that drying up of volume? And it's a two-part question because the prices, I think, is going to be very hard to predict. But with, with this uncertainty, what do you think deal volume looks like over this next coming year? So I think we're going to go more to leasing rather than buying. So um, banks aren't making construction loans. Merchant industrial developers, I advise a couple or three of them, really big ones. And they've seen the banks pull their commitments. They won't give them a new construction loan. Everything's fine. They've got the tenants. They've got everything under control. Uh, they put more equity in the deal. The bank says, no, just get the hell out of here. We're not, we don't even mm-hmm. want to talk to you. Go away. And then anybody that's got something maturing, they're saying, you got to get it out of here. We're, we're not renewing anything. That chief risk officer is saying, I don't, I don't want to even talk to anybody from the commercial real estate department. If they get on my elevator, cut the cable and let them fall to, the, fall to their death. I mean, it really is that bad. And the banks are cutting people. They're cutting underwriting. They don't want anything to do with commercial real estate. So I think the capital side on the debt is going to be very, very difficult. And what that means is we're probably going to go through about a two or three year period where we can't build much. So if you don't build much, we're still redoing our supply chain. And if you follow earnings on key industrial bellwethers, like a Prologis or some mm. of these industrial REITs, um, what they're saying is we're at 95 to 90% leased. Every lease that turns over, we're getting 20% increases. So we're able to lease this stuff, but we can't build a new deal. Then it costs new constructions near 200 bucks a square foot. The land is off the charts. Nobody will give you capital to do the land. The entitlement risk is high. The construction costs are still high. So you go two or three years where you just shut the pipeline off and there's no new supply. You're, you're going to be sitting really well come probably mid to late 25 and into 26 with your assets because um, you've done very well. They'll all be leased. The rents will be up double digit numbers. Um, the challenge is going to be are they going to be up enough to deal with some really critical cost issues? And the biggest one is property and casualty insurance. Um, we have a massive problem, not only here, but globally, because the reinsurance market has locked up. So we've had so many disasters that when you look at how insurance works, it's kind of like, think about you as a parent and letting your kid learn to drive. So you say, okay, I'm going to give them the old car. I'm going to drop the collision coverage. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to increase the deductible. And if they run into something, a tree or a mailbox, that's okay. I'll, I'll absorb that thousand, two thousand, or four thousand bucks for the used car being being gone. Um, but what happens if you don't do the additional insurance? Um, you know the um, medical and your liability. It says, okay, what if that teenager is really out of control, hits somebody, puts three in the hospital and two in the morgue? Now I've got a seven-figure lawsuit against me. That's the reinsurance market. The reinsurance market comes in and ensures that. That's what you pay your big insurance premiums for. Your little stuff you self-risk or Allstate or USA, they take care of the day-to-day kind of nominal things. But the big events, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, that's what the reinsurance market is for. And if it's not there, then the regular insurers have to step up and figure out how to raise premiums enough to cover those big risks because they, they're not the ones covering it. That's the reinsurance market. And that's all locked up right now. So you go to Florida right now, and what you're finding is people are finding that their um, their property and casualty insurance is more than their mortgage payment. So they all moved to Florida, no income tax. Yay, it's great, right? Um, sun's great. Everything's good. Uh, I got a new sunscreen for skin cancer. I got a great job. I'm getting good raises. Oh, my God, I just bought a house, and now my property casualty insurance is more than my mortgage. I can't do it, so I drop it. Well, are the banks going to do forced placement on the homeowners? What are we going to do? So what I'm watching is I'm watching um, a new indicator, Pods, that does all the shipping, the, the containers for moving your, your stuff. Instead of a U-Haul moving truck, you put it in a pod and you fill the container up and they pick it up and store it. Well, they're now studying what they call reverse moves. So they look at everybody that's moved into Florida or moved into Texas, you know, coastal area, Houston, and say, wow, see all this migration that's going into the south. 
Well, now what they're finding is that same person that moved that pod within 12 to 18 months is ordering another pod and they're moving back. They're moving out. They're going to Georgia. They're going to North Carolina. They're going to where they don't have the property casualty risk. And so are the companies. So we're already seeing the early signs that the workforce and the businesses are saying this property casualty item is so significant. We may not be able to be in Florida. We got to go a little bit north or inland, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama. And the same thing why we're seeing really strong movement into the Midwest. They don't have the same kind of property casualty issues. So we're going to see some really interesting movements on uh, migration and whatnot. But I'd say anybody that's, you know, wanting to call the end of the world in industrial or multifamily, you're going to be disappointed. The challenge is how do you get through the next 24 months? Do you have a loan that's maturing? How do you deal with that maturity? Um, if you've got, um, you know, property casualty uh, items going up double digits and your rent's only going up two to 4%, how do I, how do I work that? Um, you know, I go to my property management team and say, you got to find me some other savings to deal with this. Your most valuable player will be your property management team going forward the next two years. They're going to find the savings. So, you know, there are people out there that are trying to scare the market. You know, um, I, I pick on them. They know I do it right now. CBRE is out there trying to tell us that industrial is going bad, absorption is slowing. Um, you know, the vacancy rate went from 4.4 to 4.6. Give me a break. Half of the new construction in industrial is not spec. It's already spoken for. It's under a non-disclosure agreement. I work with the merchant developers and the tenants. And, and know that those are not all spec inventory. It's not going to be bad. We're not going to see, you know, if it goes to 5%, it, it won't even go to five and a half. So industrial is fine. It's just getting the capital structure right. In a multifamily, we have this thing called the GSEs, Freddie and Fannie and the Fed. And the Fed buys everything on their balance sheet that Freddie and Fannie can't lay off in the securitization market. So they're a backstop and Freddie and Fannie are not going to turn and implode the apartment market. So they're going to work with us. They'll extend. We'll go to 70-year apartment loans or we'll, you know, we'll, just like we did in the wall of maturities and um you know, after 2008 and nine, they did extend and pretend. They did interest only. They kicked the can down the road. Um, we have a housing shortage. If you can't buy a home and you don't have the credit score, you're going to be renting. The problem where we see rent problems are in the big urban cities where everybody has said, I don't want to work there anymore. I'm going to do remote work. But suburbs, everywhere else, very strong uh, leasing and very strong rent increases. Sheds and beds should, uh, should do well, right? There you go. Yep. Yeah. Go buy a tough shed at Home Depot and have it fixed out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there might be demand for that right now with uh, with industrial because I'm seeing that too. It's industrial. There's still a very healthy amount of demand on the lease side, uh, and that, that was a good transition point because I did want to talk about the de the demand factors on what's driving demand, and e-commerce has been a big driver of of the warehouse industry specifically over the past two decades. It has accelerated over the last couple of years, but there's also some reshoring coming. And what I, what I'd like to get your thoughts on is if is the reshoring or nearshoring with Mexico being the natural candidate. And there's there's reasons on why this could perhaps take tension off the supply chain if we don't have to have things shipped from overseas and the cargo ship delays and the backlogs like Gatton Lake and Panama. Uh, if we could have it made in Mexico and and have it shipped by rail, uh, it, is that nearshoring and reshoring? I think we could confidently say that e-commerce is going to continue growing at, at a certain pace. So there's always going to be new demand for that warehouse side. But on the manufacturing side or the called the medium heavy industrial side, do you see the nearshoring and reshoring trends having a big enough of an impact? Uh, or is that more just wishful thinking at this point? No, it's very real. Um, I'll give you some extreme examples. All right. So North America's largest toilet paper manufacturer is in Mexico. And they just announced they're moving their headquarters and their largest manufacturing to Houston, Texas, just outside of Houston. And so they're going to make North America's toilet paper in Texas. <laughs> um, it's because all the numbers work. The workforce is there. The supply chain is there. They've got, you know, the true North American class one railroad, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern that is just crushing it. Go look at your rail earnings. Look at what's happening um, on the ports that are functional. Go look at what's happening on the ports on the on the Atlantic side. Ports of Savannah, ports of Charleston, uh, Port Everglades out of Miami are just crushing it. Their numbers are up. There is no, uh, you know, we saw what was the day export 
prices were down or whatever, but we're imports and exports re almost record numbers back to where we were before the pandemic. In the Gulf Coast, we got big new ports like we've got um, the Port of Mobile that pivoted from a you know bulk cargo, coal, fluff pulp, lumber products to now it will probably surpass the Port of Charleston in containers within three years. It's got Walmart there. It's got Airbus. It's got automobile manufacturing with Hyundai and uh, I mean, um, yeah, Hyundai uh, and, and um, now in Mobile. And you've got two plants in, in the Kia plant in uh, right on the Alabama Georgia line. You've got the Toyota Mazda up up north uh, in Huntsville. You got all of the Toyota doing the new EV battery manufacturing in North Carolina. So we've got all of these things along the 85 corridor down to um, from North Carolina down to Alabama. And we've got from, you know, the Midwest, Wichita, Kansas. Remember two years ago, Bombardier said, we're leaving Canada and we're gonna put our aircraft manufacturing in Wichita because that's where we built all the planes in World War II. That's where these two guys that wanted to be in the soft drink business, but decided to be really good billionaires. The Koch brothers said, mm -hmm. we're going to, we're going to endow Wichita state university and make it the top aeronautical engineering school in North America. So I'll draw your workforce. Then you have a little company called Boeing. that says we're going to make all the fuselages that go to Seattle and go to Charleston. We're going to make it right here. So you got from there, you go down to little rock, Arkansas, you got new core steel using the inland, um, the inland port there, using the Arkansas River to go down to Mobile, they can move heavy steel, both components in and finished products. You got tractor supply picking their uh, um, supply chain headquarters there. You've got Ford building the Blue Oval City in Memphis. Um, you got all the moves into Texas. The places we're not seeing it are really in the West or where we still are going to have long-term water constraints. Even if we have five more years like we had last year of snow uh, in, in the Colorado River Basin, we're not going to fill, fill up Lake Powell and Mead. And we've got too much demand and too much population feeding off that seven state uh, river basin. So you've got tech companies that are the largest users of water that are coming south and east where there is water because uh, they use the amount of water as a city of 60,000, one chip plant. <laughs> so wow. we're going to see a lot of shifting around. In the rest of the world views, we've got ports, we've got logistics infrastructure, we have laws that protect copyrights and patents. Um, we've got all of the things, the computers, the technology, this is where they want to manufacture and we don't have the geopolitical risk. We're not sitting there in South Korea wondering what our neighbor to the north is going to do. We're not sitting there next to, you know, Iran and, and wondering what, what's going to happen in the Middle East. We're not sitting there, you know, wondering what China is going to do or retaliate to. And, you know, is, is India going to turn out to be a better bet than, than China was? Do you trade one devil for the other devil and what you're doing? And what they look at is I don't need to chase labor anymore. It's automated. It's robotic. I need good supply chain. I need good ports. We have all of that. That is what the rest of the world doesn't have. So we are seeing no slowing in onshoring or nearshoring. It's going to continue to be a big deal for us. So probably a natural answer, but your long-term outlook on industrial is pretty positive then. It is. I mean, it, it, the challenge is if you're trying to build a new deal, the numbers don't work. You can't pay 200 bucks a square foot in construction costs and then have a 7% construction loan. Those, those numbers don't work today. Um, so something's got to give. We got to get the cost down or you got to buy the land better. And that's why we're seeing so much shift in a lot of this industrial to secondary markets from primary markets. You know, Atlanta and Dallas and places in Denver are too expensive to build or operate. And so they're moving to places like Wichita, Kansas or uh, Columbus, Ohio, or, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, Greenville, South Carolina, um, in, in North Carolina as well. That's why we're seeing that shift. The wages are lower, the land's lower, the cost of construction, the labor are all cheaper, and I got better access to good ports, and I have really good electricity infrastructure, which I need at some of the lowest electricity rates. So they're figuring all that out, and that's why they're looking at those uh, inland ports and those, you know, how does your, how does your city connect with a rail leg bone to a port hip bone. If you understand that, you understand what's happening. Would you be more bullish on one of the traditional ports right now? Also taking into account that a market like LA might have $20 lease rates. Whereas if you go to Utah, it might be $6 rates and I'm pulling numbers out of my hat. So I don't know what yeah. Utah exactly is, but w would you be more bullish on some of these inland markets as, and you, you brought this idea up to me, couple of years ago about CP buying that Kansas City Southern Rail and, and moving that rail traffic traditionally being east to west and now being north to south. As that continues to build out, do you see there being some risk in these port markets which 
have such high lease rates already that some cities or some companies might just say, well, we can go inland. We don't have land constraints. We don't have high labor costs. We don't have the same bottlenecks. Uh, staff can have higher qualities of life because they're not paying California rates and California taxes. Or are those port markets going to continue to dominate just because imports and exports have to come through there? Yeah, so I think you have to look at what's your upside. So if you're an investor, you're a merchant developer, <clears throat> you're a tenant, you know, you're under you're under constraint to, to keep the numbers from growing, you know, ten to twenty percent a year on every lease renewal. And you're also looking where can I where can I locate and also uh, have a positive impact on my workforce costs, on my utility costs, they all come together. It's not just the lease rent. Because uh, a lot of the industrial or, or a triple net structure rather than an office with a, gro a gross uh, with a stop. And so the upside in your West Coast markets, it just isn't there. You're already at really the highest rates in the country. Your labor costs are among the highest in the country. Your regulations are among the highest. So if I can move inland, if I can move to Phoenix, Denver used to be a good bet, but it's gotten kind of California-like and expensive. Um, Salt Lake, it's, it's hard to find the sites. They're, they're fighting it um, in the land. I mean, Salt Lake has just become a really, really expensive market. But places like Phoenix, markets in Texas, um, Houston, or as you come inland into the Midwest markets, you can find that your land cost is half. Your construction costs are 25% less. Your workforce is 25% less. And you can actually find it. To, you can get community colleges and trade schools and, 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 and robotic expertise. Um, to basically work in those warehouses and those factories that you can't find, you know, go to LA and try to, you know, hire warehouse workers and you're, you're, you're driving them in from a two hour distance and the quality of life is terrible and they're packing up and leaving and going somewhere else. So I think when you put all those together, the upside is so much higher. Uh, the asset can get better. And what I tell a lot of like the industrial REITs is if I can get the same tenant in the same quality new building for a third less, than I can in an expensive market, why would I do it? Have the same box, same quality, same new construction with better access to labor at a more affordable cost. And I've got better logistics infrastructure, better rail, more diversity and redundancy and connectivity to ports. So think about your connectivity with Kansas City, Southern and CP. Think of from the, from the fourth coast, the Great Lakes, all the way down through the Midwest, all the way into Texas, I knew uh, port of use and I can do port free port. I can go into the Gulf. Um, I can, and if I'm in the Gulf, I can use Mobile and come up into Montgomery and come in the back door to Atlanta at a third the cost of what an Atlanta is. So why wouldn't I do that when I get the same box, the same tenant, the same credit at a third off? I would, I would do that. And we're seeing that happen today. What would you be building right now if you were to look in a market like Utah or uh, an inland market or anywhere for that matter? What what would be your general specs for an industrial building? So I wouldn't be building right now. I don't think the numbers work. And so we teach us early in our early appraisal schools about this principle called the principle of substitution. And the principle of substitution says, you know, if it's, if it's uh, too expensive to build, right, I buy existing. We're going to see a lot of existing asset go through the stress pipeline. Look, look what happened with Black um, uh, Blackstone and their sale to Prologis earlier this year. You know, uh, four billion dollar transaction. Blackstone was faced with um, uh, redemption requests. They needed cash. Prologis sitting there with a boatload of cash, and they want to add to their portfolio, so they they buy all that. So you have a lot of entities sitting out there, particularly institutional life companies, loaded with cash that the last two years sold annuities and. Uh, insurance products, you know, at three and 4% rates. So their cost of capital is less than four. They don't need to worry about it. They can put 100% equity in the deal, ride these deals out by existing. And I think the principal substitutions work today that you're going to see over the next year that you can buy really high quality assets for a whole lot less than, than cost to build. And so I wouldn't be building. I would be looking at scouring where I can, where I can buy existing. I'd be looking at buying existing in infill. So I don't need a 40 square foot building. So even in, in, uh, in the Inland Empire of California, they'll take existing and they might pop the roof up or they might you know, beef up the concrete floor or they might find I don't need all of that. The, the Prologis has made a fortune on finding that smaller tenants that churn every three to five years, they make a lot of money on. They can raise the rates and they don't need the all bells and whistles building. And so they've made a good, a good, uh, a good living and a good portfolio at doing that. 
And um, so I think infill, I think secondary markets, if I am going to build, um, I'm going to build something that does not exclude any tenant. Um, the one exception is cold storage. The cold storage numbers, if you don't know what you're doing, don't touch it. There's huge demand drivers for it. We, you know, the average age of a cold storage warehouse in the United States is over 37 years. We need to replace all of it. It's functionally obsolete. It's energy inefficient. We need to replace all of that. But you're looking at numbers that can go from 250 to 500 bucks a square foot. The oh. tenants, uh, you know, they don't have the, necessarily the credit. The only entity I'd say out there that knows what the hell they're doing in cold storage is Prudential. They finance the whole food supply chain. So they know where Procter & Gamble or Purina Dog Foods or whatever are going to go when they need cold storage. And so as they're financing that other stuff, those tenants tell them where they need their cold storage and they package it on to a credit facility. But if you're going to do cold storage, you better know somebody at Prudential. That they're the ones that know what to do, what the numbers are and how to underwrite it. Um, it's going to be too tempting. A lot of people are going to step into that. And I, I wouldn't be tempted to do it. Um, I, I still love the port markets. Look at what's happening in our East Coast and Gulf Coast port markets. I will tell you there is one change that I'd say on the, on the build new. So the tenants are hedging their risk. They don't want to go long and big. They don't want to do half million to million square foot buildings. They'd rather do 100 to 300,000 square foot buildings in parks, industrial parks that are expandable, or in a building that can be expanded two years from now. And so where you see the really strong demand and the interest is in that 100 to 350,000 square foot uh, industrial warehouse, and a good example, go just look at the, at the Port of Savannah and look at the dollars that MetLife is pouring in. Every new deal is 100 to 300,000 square feet. The minute it gets leased, MetLife is putting it on its portfolio. And so it's the smaller, the, the big box now is a smaller box um, and it's 100 to 300,000. If you've got that and you're delivering to the market, it gets leased really quickly and you can still see cap rates in the 5% range for that stuff. Because if, if your rents are going to grow 20% over the next two years or three years, you grow into a 6 6.5% cap rate. So just suck it up for two years and, and get a good quality asset that nobody can get their hands on or couldn't get their hands on. So I think the big money, the equity, the institutional money, they get that. And they're just they're gobbling everything up. And tenants that know they're not going to be able to get a developer to build something new for them, they're looking around and saying, we better, we better soak up whatever is coming online at least. So all these entities that are worried about the new construction supply, one half of it is not spec and the other half, the tenants are out there saying, there's gonna be no more new construction for two years. We better take what we can get to keep building out our supply chain. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. One trend that I've been following a lot lately is power requirements. So heavy industrial, medium industrial, they're typically built with a lot of power supply to them, but this warehousing stock, which has often just been a lot of racking in the buildings. They probably had a propane forklift and it was very minimal power requirements. But now with all the racking technology coming in and the robotics, and if we start seeing more of a movement to electric vehicles and electric semi-trucks, it's going to have even more demand requirements. And these buildings weren't built with that in mind. How are you... What are you seeing in this space for how companies are approaching this potential problem? Uh, and is there a solution like a solar going to offset this to some point? Uh, but that, that's kind of the question is that one major section of the industrial industry is underpowered uh, and the power requirements seem to be growing at a pretty big pace. So how do they how do you address that? It's location. So it's top. It's if it's not number two, it's at least, you know, approaching number one on the site selection criteria is utility, not only the cost, but the stability. They can't deal with power outages. You can't in the middle of Christmas have your, you know, all your conveyor systems shut down because power went out or, or whatnot, or if a storm goes through and knocks something off or, you know, Texas a year ago having, you know, it's winter storm, uh, you know, problem on its electric grid. So they're looking at it. And what they like is whether you go to Duke Power in the Carolinas or you go to Southern Company in Georgia Power in the Southeast, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, or you go into the Texas grid, we have good grids, we have stable electricity, and we have affordable prices. And so what you're seeing is a big sucking machine of these companies saying anything automobile manufacturing, anything heavy e-commerce like an Amazon, uh, they all need, um, and solar can't provide the surge load that they need. It can help with, you know, the peripheral lighting and, you know, some other ancillary stuff, but it can't, it can't power everything that's going on in the conveyor systems or the manufacturing system. So they're, they're looking at it and, 
those states that you know don't don't have good stable electric electric grids, electric companies um, that are also building out. I mean, heck, here in Georgia, we're still building nuclear power plants for <laughs> you know, but we're going to see a lot of technology like these smaller portable nuclear uh, type of you know uh, power plant facilities. Um, you know, if we would go back and let us turn loose um, LNG gas or whatever to power our electric um, our electric plants and even individual um, uh, industrial areas, uh, we, we could see a lot more there. But it's a big, big deal. And it's and the other thing is, you know, to get all of the electrical equipment and the generators and the transformers, you can't get that stuff right now. There's very few people that make it. You could be looking at one year lead times to get all of your electrical equipment that you need. So got to got to really plan ahead. Kind of leads that's into why the... some of these older buildings that principle of substitution. You can go into some of these older buildings that you know maybe you know don't, maybe they only have about twenty two to twenty four foot clear, and the tenant doesn't need twenty eight or thirty. They can work just fine. A good example: Haverty's Furniture, Home Depot. They don't need twenty eight and thirty foot clear. They can operate very very well. You know, in twenty two foot. And if they're in a market though that has good electricity, stable electricity, affordable power, in an older building uh, that's got good access to say. I-85, I-75, or the rail, CSX and Norfolk Southern, and they can distribute out of there. Um, it, it, it's a pretty good, and they go down to the port or bring things in from the port, uh, Port of Mobile, Port of Savannah. Um, and, and those are driving secondary and tertiary markets like, you know, south of Atlanta, where I am in Macon, Georgia, which is between the port and Atlanta. It's becoming a major place to get the trucks and everything in there and load and break them down. And then in the evening hours when the traffic's down, then they can move through Atlanta or get them on rail and move them on up, up the coast or inland. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's going to be a major consideration going forward too. It's And I like the part that you made about ceiling heights is that some companies might prioritize heavier power over higher ceiling heights just as a function of what they're doing inside the space. It might make sense to have more automation as opposed to higher racking uh, in there. So that'll be really interesting to watch. It, it also kind of leads into one question where I need you to put your futurist hat on for a second. <laughs> and this is one one of the things that, that I've really been trying to identify is that it, a black swan event in industrial. And, and I know the definition of a black swan is that you can't see it coming, yeah. but in office they got hit with the pandemic and in retrospect that should have been on people's at least radar but even if it was a low probability of it happening is what happens if there is a pandemic and it forces people out in retail there is e-commerce which has been slowly eroding certain uh areas of of retail and, and causing it to adapt is there anything that you could see or think of that would be that black swan kind of event that could impact the industrial market. Yeah. So it's, we've got, we got two supply chain channels in the, in the globe. We got the Panama canal and we have the Suez canal and we have the Panama affected right now with drought and the Suez with huge geopolitical risks. And we saw what happened when that one boat got stuck in the Suez canal, you know, a yeah, year ago and what kind yeah. of disaster, you know, I, I think the black swan event is, what what happens with we get a real powder keg and the Suez Canal gets shut down and you can't move through the Panama Canal because you're still in a drought. I think understanding those two supply chain routes and how do we how do we move back and forth between Asia, you know, in the Middle East, uh, if one or both of those are adversely impacted, it's kind of like your heart. You know, your your arteries you might say, yeah, they're they're a little, you know, occluded, but they're still getting, you know, 30, 40 percent blood through. And no one's paying attention to the heart and the aorta and the valves and the valves are about shot or one of those blows out. It doesn't matter what the hell's going on with the arteries. You're dead. <laughs> and those two supply chains are kind of those two you know, key arteries that are going in and out of the heart. And um, I think that's the risk that I see with the geopolitical is um, I'm really worried about the Suez. We have more growth and more traffic going through the Suez than we do the Panama Canal right now. And so it's coming into the East Coast and uh, we're sending stuff now out of Texas in the Gulf and they're spending an extra week to sail around South America to go out and go to um, you know to Asia. Um, and so we're already seeing those impacts and it means longer lead times, more costs, more disruption, and we have not really rebuilt our full supply chain. You know, my theory was that we would go and create a more of a north-south in the importance of Canada and Mexico and what Kansas City Southern and Canadian Pacific did in really connecting that first class one railroad. 
I think you could see, I've been forecasting it for a while, the Canadian national is going to have to make a move and they're going to have to come after CSX or um, Norfolk Southern in the, in the Southeast and mid Atlantic to basically compete with Canadian Pacific. And they're getting their clocks cleaned right now um, by that. And then, you know, we keep consolidating on the rail side. Look at what happens. We have a major rail disruption. Look what we had with the rail, the rail derailments where you get a, a big flooding in the spring down the Mississippi River and finally fills back up again or something. Um, look at the disruption that could happen on the rail. So I think those supply chain arteries are six remaining class one railroads and the two ultimate you know, arteries that move everything around the world, the Panama and the Suez Canal, I, I worry those are the black swan events. What does it look like if things get worse in either of those areas? It could be ugly. Go back to 1973. Look what we had when the oil got shut off. We had gas line. I remember, you know, my mom and the moms in the neighborhood would leave their cars parked for two, three blocks at the neighborhood gas station with their phone number on the dashboard. So when a gas truck came, you know, the gas attendant would call everybody and you had, you know, 15 to 30 minutes to come get your car and move it in line or he had his tow truck and he just pulled you out of line. And, and that went on for quite a while. And people that haven't been through that don't understand, you know, remember the moms would get together and meet like, okay, who has gas this week? Who can drive the kids to whatever activity? And we didn't do travel activities back then. We just did neighborhood. And, and usually it was one in three or four moms had gas in their station wagon that would pile, you know, 10 kids with no seatbelt and lots of lead paint in the back into the station wagon <laughs> and, and would haul everybody. And that, that took over a year of disruption. And we had a society that was a lot more tame and tolerant than what we have today. You know, and I, I've observed even here in Atlanta, when we get the slightest disruption in the colonial pipeline, we got people shooting at each other in our gas lines because they can't get gas for a day or whatever. So we're, we're not of a society that's very tolerant. We want everything fast food, drive through. I want it right. I want it right now. I'm impatient. You know, why is my, you know, not working right now? We're not a very patient, tolerant society that is prepared to deal with disruption like I think our parents did. I think it could be ugly. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on that. A uh, couple quick lightning round questions, if you're up for it. Who wins the election sure. next year? <laughs> I hope the American public. I fear <laughs> my prediction is we end up with the same two candidates and we get more polarized as a country and the rest of the world gets more disgusted with us. We don't work on all the key issues. I don't, the best hope I see of a difference is maybe Nikki Haley getting traction now. Um, you know, that, that, that could rise up. But Trump is such a powerful force on his side and on the Democratic side. You know, uh, they don't care whether Biden knows who he is or what he's doing as long as they're in control. And we have a Congress that's so divided and so dysfunctional. And now with the congressional representatives that we've had either depart or, you know, on the natural terms or unnatural, you know, we're like a, what, a one or two vote margin difference in the whole country. I'm very poor. And the biggest issue is what? abortion, right, on reproductive rights, when it should be about all these other issues. We get so distracted on stuff that politicians shouldn't have their hands in. And so I have a feeling we don't make progress. I, I hope there's a Ronald Reagan or a Tip O'Neill that can emerge and we can get back to that era because that's that's what we need. We need two, two grown-ups that can sit down, know they're not going to get their, their way 100%, um, but can work together to as a good middle ground. We don't have that today. But I, I feel it's going to be a cluster. And by the time we get to next summer and see that we've got Trump Biden again, God help us. It's going to be a, it's going to be an awful summer. Go, I don't know, go to New Zealand now, you know, go talk to the finance minister over there and see what they can do on a, on, on finance or whatever, or go to Canada. You know, it's, I fear, and we're not even focused on the chaos of that next year. Yeah. That's, that will be a, conversation in itself uh, next year so it'll just add to more uncertainty uh, that we'll be dealing with next year as well more lighthearted question sure. are taylor swift and travis kelsey still together next year <laughs> probably not <laughs> <laughs> she needs another breakup song right i know you know it's uh I'll, I'll ask charlie beagle behind me so charlie uh travels with me now i've got such bad diabetic neuropathy in my feet i don't feel the bottom of my feet so he kind of helps me navigate stairs and escalators and jet ramps and so we're going to be adding in 2024 a beagle section so all the things that i can't answer and figure out charlie beagle will answer them and so he's already trained that whenever i say barbecue sauce in one of my presentations he he perks to attention and he barks like he agrees 
Um, but we're going to do the animal kingdom. We'll do things like the vet shortage, but we're going to try to bring, you know, kind of the, the wild animal kingdom perspective of the economy at the conclusion of presentations. But he's a hoot. He's, I've taken him to about four or five presentations. Everybody loves him. They don't want, they don't want me. They'll pay me more if I bring uh, Charlie Beagle and do a Beagle-nomics. So um, anyway, so Charlie maybe will make sense out of it next year. We need uh, Charlie to get his own Twitter account and maybe a YouTube page because I I'd follow uh, Beagle-nomics all day. It's a great idea. We, we had a coin toss whether to name the new company Casey-nomics or Beagle-nomics, and I was for Beagle-nomics, but all the attorneys said, no, you got to be legitimate. You got to go with Casey-nomics. But we may put a picture of, uh, of Charlie on the, on the logo in there somewhere. <laughs> I love it. I think that's such a great idea. So last question, what does, what does 2024 have in store for you? What's uh, what are you preparing for? Are you, are you working on building out caseonomics anymore? Are you traveling? I know you're doing a lot of court cases. What does 2024 look like for you? Yeah, I'm hoping I can get back to some sanity. You know, when you have a, a, a partnership blow up because somebody, you know, goes off the rails, that's always difficult. And we're still working through that. Um, I, I'm really worried about, you know, the industry associations. You look at NAR, you look at all the affiliates. Um, I, I think National Association of Realtors lost its way. And I think we're going to see a technology solution. You know, God forbid, maybe a co-star comes and buys MLS. Um, their, their home services, uh, uh, you know, platform already has just surpassed NAR in terms of listings um, already on the residential front. So I think, um, you know, I, I'll continue to do the litigation support because everybody's fighting, spitting and hissing at everybody right now. Nobody likes the bank's number. They don't like what the bank's doing. The developer's mad at everybody. Nobody can make anything work. So everybody's litigating. Taxes are too high. They're, they're going after the tax assessors. So in times of turmoil, you know, my world as an appraiser and a, and a you know, subject matter expert is when things are really booming I'm in strong demand because people are trying to make sure they don't miss out. And when they all go to hell, I'm really busy because everybody's fighting at each other. So I'll probably be doing more of that. I'm hoping to slow the travel down. I've already looked at my first quarter. I did over 80 trips this year. I'm already, I've already got over 30 booked and I'm not even into the new year next year. Um, So I want to do what you back to more research type stuff. I'm going to update all my ports and logistics. Um, I've got a, a big piece on adaptive reuse coming out. We've done some work with the rating agencies and uh, a lot of the debt and equity sources institutional to basically make adaptive reuse more underwritable. We're going to need it, whether it's office or branch banks or retail, because the saying I offered last year was remote work would be to office what uh, e-commerce was to big box retail. We're only in the first inning of what we're going to go through in office. Um, caveating that, suburban will do okay. It's the big urban where you got to commute and it's expensive. It's going to be beaten up. Um so I want to get back to some more research, more publishing. Uh, I want to be, if anybody wants me to come speak, I love being in person and talking and presenting because you get that two-way feedback. You get great questions. And as you know, like your audience, people come to your audience uh, and your platform or to events because there's about 5% of the people that have a real problem. And they're hoping they'll learn something or find a nugget or meet somebody to help them with their problem. And so I try to be that person that says, you know, come here, I'll, I'll, I'll help work with you um, on that side. So um, appraisals are going to be a mess. I'll probably be doing a lot more appraisal work. The pra- quality appraisal work is atrocious out there. Um, what I'm doing in tax appeal stuff, what I see come in and, and the idiocy and more of our real estate, people need to understand more of our real estate has an intangible and non-real estate value. So I just did a big uh, self-storage case where about a third of the value in self-storage in these REITs is intangible. It's a business. It's all the things that are going on behind the scenes, away from the site. You got billboard advertising. You got cell phone towers. You've got uh, moving trucks. Uh, you, you've got tons of stuff that are that are going on that are not the real estate. And the tax assessors are are assessing the whole thing. So uh, I do a lot of manufactured housing. Um, so I'm on the REIT UMH. Um, we're, we're trying. To, we're the only entity that can probably put somebody into a twelve to fourteen hundred square foot home for in a $1,000 a month rent. Brand new home, utilities one-third the cost of an apartment, but the NIMBYs don't want manufactured homes because they think that's where tornadoes and crime occur. So we got to change that attitude. So, um, you know, affordable housing, adaptive use, uh, the ports and logistics, I think the things that can really move the needle on our economy, and I want to get back to a lot more research and and being in, in person with people. I'm tired of the attorneys. <laughs> 
I could appreciate that. I know every time I have you on the show, I get a lot of people asking where they can follow along with what you're putting out. Where is LinkedIn best? Your website? Where's the best place to follow you? Yeah, thank you for ask, for asking that. So um, I'll give both my emails, and LinkedIn is the best. I, I post there every day, every other day, and uh, and give barbecue sauce wars out. So my my lifetime email that I'm taking with me to the afterlife is uh, my initials KC. M-A-I-C-R-E at gmail.com. The new one for the company is initials KC at KCNomicsLLC.com. And um, uh, LinkedIn, just, you know, reach out to me, uh, look for the post. I try to put good stuff there. And I compliment a lot of people that, that put good stuff and research out. There's, it's amazing how much good stuff is done and put together that, you know, I don't have to use my brain cells anymore. I just have to know how to read and understand it. So um, anything we can do, if you need somebody to speak or got a research problem or, and, and I don't charge for the call or initial email. I'm, I'm pretty good. So I'm not like a lawyer where I start billing every 15 minutes. <laughs> well, I know that I've certainly got a ton of value from t- talking to you over the years. So I'd encourage people to, to reach out and, and explore those opportunities with you. And I do just want to uh, wish you, Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and uh, hoping that I can have you on again in 2024 to see what see what craziness we're dealing with next year. Yeah, no, it's always an honor to be on your show and with your audience um, and your podcast. So um, anytime, just call or you know raise the flag, and I'll be there. I, I think at, around or after the March Fed meeting, you know, or maybe we do an after Groundhog Day to see what the Groundhog is going to tell the Fed. We could have fun with that one, but I think March and May are going to be the two big dates. Um, Fed won't do anything in January and take off February to let the groundhog tell them what to do. They're always afraid to do much in, in March, but they'll give us clues like they did last year, the first rate hike. And then they take April off. And then May and June is when we're almost halfway in the year and we kind of know what, what's really happening. So I think we're going to find the inflation is not tamed and the Fed's going to have to pivot back to, to probably rate hikes by May or June, hmm. unfortunately. Well, I will put it in my calendar to reach out to you so we can uh, uh, talk about that in the spring. That'll be great. We'll see what uh, what green shoots, right? We'll get all the old analogies uh, that, that they you know, used to bring out. Where are the green shoots? Or we'll archive all of them. Maybe we can come up with some new ones, right? Well, and then we'll be deep into Beagle-nomics by then too. So we'll, we'll have lots of content, lots of things to talk about. We'll ask Charlie. We'll have, we'll have Beagle-nomics for next year. It's going to be, it's going to be bigger than Red Shoe now. I mean, Beagle-nomics is going to be great. And, you know, it. I find, you know, when I used to go to events, you know, I'd know 10 or 15 people at the beginning, meet another 10 or 15 people on the way out. When I have Charlie, I know everybody and their kids' names and their goldfish names before I leave. He is the biggest magnet draw. If, if I'd known how, how much of a draw, you know, having a, a Beagle or a service dog with me, I would have become disabled a long time ago. <laughs> I have to meet Charlie one of these days. So it'll be, it'll be an honor for me to meet him. He's a great guy. He's a good dog. Well, Merry Christmas to you, you too. Charlie, and your family. And uh, again, thank you very much, Casey. I really do appreciate your time and wisdom. You didn't tell me. Have a great holidays. Everybody be safe. <laughs>